Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On September 27th, 1920, the Chicago White Sox played their last home game of the season against the Detroit Tigers. The White Sox were in the thick of a pennant race, neck and neck with the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees for first place in the American League. With only four games left in the season, the White Sox needed to win all four to have a shot at the World Series for the second straight year. After five innings, the score was still 0-0. But in the bottom of the sixth, the White Sox finally got something going, thanks to consecutive base hits from Buck Weaver and Eddie Collins. Shoeless Joe Jackson was next to the plate, carrying his signature bat, Black Betsy. Jackson was putting a cap on one of the best seasons of his decorated 13-year career, setting career highs with 12 home runs and 122 runs batted in. The hometown crowd rose to their feet, hoping to see yet another clutch hit from their all-star outfielder. Jackson did not disappoint. He laced a line drive single, scoring Buck Weaver and giving the White Sox the lead. The fans cheered. Jackson was the hero. Little did he know, a devastating story was beginning to circulate. A newspaper article quoted an obscure gambler who confirmed the rumors that the 1919 World Series had been fixed, that Jackson and seven others were paid to throw games so that the Cincinnati Reds won. As Jackson soaked in the cheers of the crowd, he had no idea it would be the last time he would ever claim a base in a game of professional baseball. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
to stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second and final episode on the Black Sox scandal. In 1919, several players on the Chicago White Sox were paid to throw the World Series. Last week, we covered the origins of the game-fixing scheme and how the Cincinnati Reds won the 1919 World Series. This week, we're following the fallout of the World Series fixing scandal and how the courts and the sport of baseball dealt with the eight accused players. October 9th, 1919, Comiskey Park in Chicago, the top of the ninth in Game 8 of the World Series. 32-year-old Shoeless Joe Jackson strode to the plate. The Chicago White Sox were down to their final out. He was their last hope. Jackson hit a routine ground ball to second base, which was quickly scooped up and thrown to first. Jackson was out, and the Cincinnati Reds won the 1919 World Series. It was the Reds' first championship ever, and the Cincinnati fans exploded with joy in the stands. But in truth, their victory was tainted. Eight members of the White Sox, including Shoeless Joe Jackson, their star slugger, had been paid to throw the series. The day after the series ended, Jackson was racked with guilt over what had transpired. While he wasn't necessarily directly involved, he never met with any of the gamblers and played very well in the series. He knew of the scheme and had technically accepted some of the bribe money, though he always maintained that Lefty threw the cash on the floor of his hotel room despite the fact that Jackson had refused it. Before beginning the drive down to his home in Georgia, Jackson stopped by the office of Charles Comiskey, the White Sox owner. Jackson told Comiskey's assistant that he had something important to tell him. But Jackson was turned away. Comiskey had no interest in seeing him. After stubbornly waiting a few hours in the White Sox front office, Jackson eventually left and headed home. Comiskey didn't want to see Jackson because he already knew what Jackson would tell him. He knew that the players had thrown the series and that the truth would become public sooner rather than later. The manager, Kid Gleason, had already told him the seven players he thought were responsible, and local gamblers were reaching out with rumors they had heard. Comiskey didn't know what he was going to do about it. He wasn't sure exactly who had betrayed him and who hadn't. Comiskey had two options. He could either do nothing and hope the allegations would fade over time, as previous fixing rumors had, or he could kickstart the investigations himself both within baseball and in the court of law. Comiskey decided on a middle ground option. He put out a public statement offering a $20,000 reward to anyone who had information on any possible fix. Well, this made Comiskey look like he was driven to discover the truth, while also potentially giving him the ability to find and squash anything too threatening to his ball club. In addition to the reward, Comiskey assigned Alfred Austrian, his friend and lawyer, to follow up on the allegations. Comiskey had to figure out if any evidence they found could be swept under the rug or if it had to be dealt with in the open. This included hiring a team of private investigators to infiltrate the gambling world. 
Comiskey and Austrian also gave the private investigators the manager's list of seven players they suspected of throwing the series. Eddie Sycott, Chick Gandel, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Happy Felsch, Fred McMullen, Swede Risberg, and Lefty Williams. Buck Weaver, the eighth man in the conspiracy, was questioned but not initially suspected. The investigators would look at all of them and see whether any had recently come into a substantial amount of money. The lead investigator, John R. Hunter, traveled around the country, visiting each of the suspected players as they enjoyed their off-season. Posing as a real estate agent, Hunter got to know Chick Gandel and saw the brand new house he had bought in Los Angeles. The price tag was $6,500, over two grand more than the entirety of his 1919 salary. Gandel categorically denied the accusations of throwing the series, and Hunter couldn't find anything proving otherwise. Hunter then looked into Fred McMullen, who was working as a rail yard blacksmith over the winter. McMullen also denied that he was involved in any fix. However, he implied that he knew there might have been a plan, and he suggested that Hunter should talk to Lefty Williams and Eddie Sycott, but neither gave Hunter anything to work with. By early December of 1919, after two months of investigations, Hunter wasn't able to find anything conclusive. There were innuendos from McMullen, and some of the players had recently made splashy purchases, but nothing that Comiskey thought was convincing. Comiskey, having done his due diligence, now believed comfortably that the fixing rumors and allegations would simply fade away. The world already seemed to be moving on, focusing on bigger stories, like the Boston Red Sox trading Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. While Comiskey may have been all too happy to put the rumors of impropriety behind him, others were less eager. Across the country, a single journalist was working on a story that would make sure the case of the 1919 World Series would remain open in the public eye. 46-year-old Hugh Fullerton was a veteran sports writer. He'd just moved over to the New York world after writing for two decades in Chicago. Fullerton was a baseball savant, obsessed with quantifying the minute details of the game and tallying up the statistics. Something about the 1919 World Series gameplay just didn't feel right to him, and he was determined to find out what had really happened. On December 15, 1919, Fullerton published an article in The Evening World on the fixing rumors with the headline, Is Big League Baseball Being Run for Gamblers with Ballplayers in the Deal? His article alleged that gambling and its influence was becoming an epidemic in the sport, culminating in the fixing of the 1919 World Series. Fullerton's reporting was light on direct accusations and heavy on speculation. His article was based on personally hearing gamblers talk about the series while he watched the games in Cincinnati. He also noted some of the plays he had witnessed, like the back-to-back airs by Sycott, seemed suspicious. The response from baseball's owners and other sports writers was swift and vicious. They attacked Fullerton for suggesting that baseball was a corrupt sport and criticized him for printing unsubstantiated rumors. Well, meanwhile, Ray Schock, the White Sox catcher who had realized that his teammates were throwing the series and took violent exception to it, couldn't stay quiet during the off-season. 
In December of 1919, he gave an interview to a local Chicago newspaper and speculated that seven White Sox players would not be on the team when the next season started. Schalk's quote was amplified by the nationwide papers and gave credence to Fullerton's reporting. As the calendar shifted from 1919 to 1920, the rumors were growing louder and more difficult for Comiskey and the other owners to ignore. Still, there wasn't much the players or owners could do. As reporters and sports writers continued to dig, they had no choice but to continue into the next season as if nothing had happened. The 1920 baseball season began on April 14, 1920. After a lengthy contract negotiation period, each player from the 1919 squad eventually returned, with the exception of Chick Gandel. He retired from professional baseball after the management of the White Sox turned down his request for higher wages. He later played for some semi-pro teams in California. Back in the clubhouse, the squad was more divided than ever before. The controversies and rumors in the offseason had caused the fractures between locker room cliques to become massive gulfs. The suspected players mostly kept to themselves. They made sure to stay far away from the wrath of catcher Ray Schalk or star second baseman Eddie Collins. The events of the previous October remained an unacknowledged elephant in the room, even as the White Sox were focused on making a run at the American League pennant in 1920. Third baseman Buck Weaver was miserable. He was shunned by the other non-conspiring players on the team and felt uneasy continuing to associate with the six other suspected ones. For some games, Kid Gleason shifted him from third base back to shortstop, a position he hadn't played since 1917 when Swede Risberg joined the team. Despite his famous defensive abilities, the mistakes piled up. On June 6th, the 43rd game of the season, Weaver made his eighth error in the field. He had only made eight errors across the entirety of 1919. Weaver began to obsess over the idea of getting out of Chicago and escaping the toxic locker room. He fantasized about doing what Babe Ruth did and getting himself sold to the New York Yankees. But Comiskey wouldn't even entertain the idea, and Weaver remained in Chicago. Despite the cloud of suspicion and controversy surrounding the team and infecting its locker room, the White Sox were still playing well. Shoeless Joe Jackson, Buck Weaver, and Eddie Sycott were all putting up career numbers, besting even their impressive 1919 season. By the end of August, they were in first place in the American League, embroiled in a close pennant race with the New York Yankees and the Cleveland Indians. Outside the baseball diamond, however, the controversy over gambling and game-fixing in baseball reached a fever pitch. In September of 1920, the newly elected Chief Justice of the Cook County Criminal Courts, Charles McDonald, announced that a grand jury would look into the allegations of game-throwing in Major League Baseball. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey would be the first witness called. Coming up, the criminal investigation into the 1919 World Series begins. Now back to the story. On August 31, 1920, William Veek Sr., the president of the Chicago Cubs, received a barrage of startling telegrams. Supposedly, the game that very day between his Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies was fixed. 
a bizarre amount of money was bet on the Phillies to win the game, so much that the odds had shifted from favoring the Cubs to favoring the Phillies. Sure enough, the Cubs dropped the first game by a score of three to nothing. This fix wasn't the secret operation that the 1919 World Series was. Somehow the story got out immediately and by September 2nd, newspapers all over the country were reporting that the Cubs had thrown the game to the Phillies. And it wasn't just a black mark on the Cubs franchise. It was confirmation of what sports writer Hugh Fullerton had spent a year writing on. Baseball was far from the idyllic pastime it claimed to be. The sport was without a doubt corrupted by gambling. Cook County Chief Justice Charles A. McDonald impaneled a grand jury to look into baseball gambling after the Cubs-Phillies controversy. Within a few days, it became clear, though, that the 1919 World Series would be the real focus. Throwing a game in late August during the middle of the regular season was one thing. Throwing the championship was another ball game entirely. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey testified to the grand jury in late September of 1920. He explained that, upon hearing the rumors of a fix, he hired a private investigator to find evidence supporting the rumors, but it didn't turn up anything substantial. Comiskey made sure to emphasize that he would be as harsh as possible on any player he found to be throwing games. The grand jury heard testimony from other baseball executives, active players, and gamblers. They confirmed that the 1919 World Series was most likely fixed. Many were willing to name names, and slowly the eight players involved were all revealed. Also named with the players was gambler Arnold Rothstein, whose mention made the case even more scandalous. Leaks and speculation from the grand jury were reprinted all over the country, and it scared pitcher Eddie Sycott. Not only had the players and gamblers named him as a conspirator in the grand jury, but several of them had pointed to him as the ringleader. Throughout September, as the drama played out in the Cook County Courthouse, Sycott felt a growing sense of dread. He knew that sooner rather than later, the entire scheme would come to light. To make matters worse, the White Sox were beginning to struggle on the field. Perhaps distracted by the growing scandal, they started losing ground to the Cleveland Indians and dropped to second place. On September 27th, an article in a Philadelphia newspaper finally brought the entire scandal into the light. In the article, gambler Billy Maharg claimed that he had acted as middleman between the players and Arnold Rothstein. Maharg wasn't the leader of the group, hadn't made any money off of the scheme, and didn't know all of the details. The players didn't even know who he was, but he knew enough. He knew the names of the players involved and how much money they were promised. Maharg confirmed that the fix consisted of eight players who were promised $100,000, but received only a tenth of that. And like everyone else at the grand jury, he said Eddie Sycott was the originator of the fix. The article was the end of Sycott's baseball career, and he knew it. The next day, White Sox manager Kid Gleason visited Sycott at his hotel and summoned him to a meeting with Comiskey. Sycott knew what was happening. To him, it was a funeral march. Sycott went with Gleason to meet with Charles Comiskey, Comiskey's lawyer, and the assistant state attorney involved in the case. 
Comiskey and Gleason informed Sycott that, effective immediately, he was no longer a member of the Chicago White Sox. His only option was to confess and hopefully avoid more serious consequences. Sycott, rattled and disheartened, didn't even ask for a lawyer. He began to weep as he confessed to the men in the room. He told them everything, how Gandal had proposed the fix during a train ride, how they agreed to throw the series for $10,000, and how they recruited six other players, Williams, Felsch, McMullen, Risberg, Weaver, and Jackson. The lawyer's secretary typed up Sycott's confession and he signed it as a sworn deposition. Although it was never directly stated, Sycott was under the impression that his confession would lead to his immunity. From there, Sycott and the lawyers went directly to the courthouse. He was brought to the office of Chief Justice Charles McDonald, who was unimpressed by Sycott's confession. He already knew which players were involved. McDonald wanted to know more about the gamblers. He wanted proof that this went all the way to Arnold Rothstein. Sycott couldn't give him that. He knew very little about the gambler side of the scheme. So McDonald told the assistant state attorney to indict Sycott. The state attorney, half-heartedly trying to keep his promise, managed to convince McDonald to let Sycott go home after he testified. Nervous, isolated, and still without any form of legal representation, Sycott was put in front of the grand jury and asked to repeat his confession. Like before, tears streamed down his face as he recounted the entire saga. He sadly told the grand jury that the scheme had cost him everything. His baseball career, his reputation, his friends. Now all he wanted was a fresh start. Elsewhere in the city of Chicago, shoeless Joe Jackson was getting drunk, trying to forget about the bombshell article. He drank until he passed out that night and kept drinking the next morning. He heard that Sycott had been taken to the courthouse and had sold them all out. Jackson had to make a choice, confess like Sycott and face the consequences or continue to declare his innocence. Unlike Sycott, Jackson was shrewd enough to ask for a lawyer before he spoke to the grand jury. But Comiskey's lawyer, wanting to get this entire investigation finished as quickly as possible, convinced Jackson that he didn't need one. As long as he cooperated, he'd be safe. Still somewhat inebriated, Jackson agreed. He was taken to see Judge McDonald, who vetted Jackson's story before allowing him to testify in front of the grand jury. Just like Sycott, Jackson was under the impression that his cooperation would procure him immunity from prosecution, or at the very least, favorable treatment. On the afternoon of September 28, 1920, Jackson put on a shirt and tie and tried his best to sober up as he sat in front of the grand jury. For the next two hours, Jackson answered every question as truthfully as he could. Though he testified that he knew of the scheme and took the money that was offered, Jackson was adamant that he always played to win. He never made an error or swung a bat with the intention of hurting his team's chances at winning. It was his fear of retaliation from his conspirator teammates that kept him quiet through the fix and its aftermath. Jackson was subdued and quiet as he answered the attorney's questions. When asked if he was angry about the entire situation, Jackson said he wasn't. He was simply ashamed of what he'd done. 
By the time Jackson left the courthouse in the mid-afternoon, the day's events had caught up to the press and a massive crowd had assembled outside the courthouse. Hugh Fullerton was present at the scene and later wrote that as Jackson emerged from the courthouse, a boy grabbed Jackson's coat sleeve and asked him, It ain't true, is it, Joe? Jackson supposedly replied, I'm afraid it is. The boy, heartbroken, responded, Well, I'd never have thought it. The story of the little boy on the courthouse steps has been proven to have been fabricated. Shoeless Joe later confirmed that the exchange never took place in an interview with Sport Magazine. But the sense of betrayal felt by White Sox and baseball fans across the country was very real. Everyone wanted the owners and courts to come down harshly on the players who had disgraced the game. So on the day of Jackson's testimony, Charles Comiskey sent out a telegram informing each of the seven suspected players that they were suspended indefinitely from the Chicago White Sox. Chick Gandil was spared given his retirement from professional baseball. Comiskey added an additional warning in his message, that if the accusations were proven true, he would do everything in his power to make sure the conspiring players were banned from baseball for life. Coming up, the Black Sox saga reaches its conclusion as a new commissioner of baseball arrives and makes a stunning decree. Now, back to the story. After a year of rumors and whispered allegations, the truth of the 1919 World Series fix was finally being revealed. In September of 1920, a grand jury investigation in Chicago began gathering evidence for a court case against the eight accused players. Meanwhile, fans waited with bated breath as to what the consequences would be. After Eddie Sycott and Shoeless Joe Jackson testified to the grand jury, Lefty Williams faced the court. He repeated much of the same information. Meanwhile, a reporter from the Chicago American newspaper got Happy Felsch drunk and coaxed the truth out of him. The four confessions all agreed on the basics of how the fix came together, but were inconsistent on the details. If anything, they proved how haphazard the attempted fix really was. The players weren't synchronized in their actions, and none of them seemed to have understood who the gamblers were and what their plan was. After receiving Comiskey's September 28th suspension telegram, Buck Weaver went directly to Comiskey's office to save his job and his career. But Comiskey was unmoved by Weaver's pleas. His decision stood. Weaver left and kept his head down as he walked through the crowd of reporters that had gathered outside. He didn't say a word to any of them. Meanwhile, catcher Ray Schalk and the other players on the White Sox celebrated the suspensions with a party at Eddie Collins' house. The problem players on their team were finally gone. They could now focus on getting into the postseason. The eight accused players, along with three gamblers, Sport Sullivan, Bill Burns, and Abe Attell, were indicted on charges of conspiracy to defraud. The trial was set for early next year. Buck Weaver hoped that the trial would be wrapped up quickly. Once his innocence was proven, Weaver planned to report to spring training. Chick Gandel, meanwhile, defiantly claimed that they were all being framed by the ownership of baseball. While the legal case played out, the leadership of professional baseball had their own mess to clean up. The fallout of the fixing scandal led to a crisis among the owners. 
the American and National Leagues, technically separate entities, were involved in a power struggle, and the existing body meant to oversee both, the National Commission, was failing to keep the owners together. Albert Lasker, an advertising executive and a board member of the Chicago Cubs, proposed an alternative to baseball's ineffective National Commission. He wanted baseball to have a single commissioner, given near-absolute power over the entire sport. On November 11, 1920, the baseball owners officially created the Office of the Commissioner of Baseball. They offered the job to 53-year-old Kennesaw Mountain Landis, a federal judge best known for his harsh stances on corruption. He was dignified, respected, and tough, the perfect man to clean up the disgraced national pastime. Landis decided to wait on any league action concerning the eight White Sox players until after the courts ruled. All eyes turned to the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. The state of Illinois' case against the ball players and gamblers was thin. The actual crime that the players were accused of, conspiracy to defraud institutions in the state of Illinois, was so convoluted and unclear that the prosecution needed to completely rewrite their case after the first series of hearings. There was even a question over whether the players had actually broken the law at all. Throwing games technically wasn't illegal. The pressure on both the prosecution and the defendants was high. Fixing the World Series wasn't just a normal betting scandal. It was seen as an attack on America's pastime. Well, the prosecution's job was made even harder when the signed transcripts of the confessions by Sycott, Jackson, and Williams went missing. The general assumption is that they were stolen by associates of Arnold Rothstein to make sure Rothstein wasn't eventually indicted along with the players. Though, of course, this has never been corroborated. The players' lawyers were challenging the use of those confessions anyway, arguing they were given under the promise of immunity and were therefore invalid. The delays pushed the trial into the summer of 1921. Buck Weaver's wish of a quick trial faded, as did his hopes of returning to the baseball diamond. The proceedings finally began on June 27, 1921. By now, the players, including Chick Gandel, had each managed to procure high-profile defense attorneys, the lawyers fought tooth and nail on every decision and piece of legal minutia. The trial was a slog. It took three weeks to impanel a jury, with the defense successfully removing every baseball fan. On July 19th, the prosecution then brought player-turned-gambler Bill Burns to the stand as their star witness. Burns testified for three days, detailing how he acted as the intermediary between Gandel and the gamblers, and how the scheme fell apart when he felt the players double-crossed him by winning Game 3. The defense brought in players and coaches from the 1919 White Sox team who testified that nothing they saw from the accused players seemed suspicious at the time. They also tried to discredit Bill Burns by proving that all the accused players were at a practice at the time Burns said he met with them in a hotel room. There were no major revelations in the trial, and the arguments mostly boiled down to the legal question of whether or not the act of fixing the series constituted a conspiracy to defraud. The trial finally came to a close on August 2nd, 1921. After two and a half days of closing arguments, the jury left the courtroom to deliberate. The eight players stood around the courthouse, waiting. 
their careers, livelihoods, and reputations hanging in the balance. Buck Weaver allowed himself to feel hopeful. He felt as though the trial had proven that he didn't betray his team. He didn't take any money or play poorly in the series. Shoeless Joe Jackson, on the other hand, was more pessimistic. He still felt guilty about his role in the fix and believed the jury would feel the same way. Just before 10 p.m., after deliberating for only two hours and 47 minutes, the jury announced that they had reached a verdict. The players, their lawyers, and hundreds of spectators re-entered the courtroom, anxious to hear the decision. Then they waited another 40 excruciating minutes for the judge to return from his hotel. When the judge finally returned, the jury read their verdict. All eight players were found not guilty. The crowd went wild, cheering and throwing hats and papers in the air in celebration. Their hometown heroes were innocent. The players were overjoyed. Suddenly, the dark cloud that had hovered over them since October 1919 seemed like it was lifting. A beaming Eddie Sycott shook the jury foreman's hand and thanked him. Jackson and Lefty Williams thanked each juror. Chick Gandal gleefully shook hands with everyone, exclaiming that they'd been proven to be honest ball players. Weaver stood in the middle of the chaos, grinning ear to ear. He'd been vindicated. The players went to a nearby Italian restaurant and celebrated the acquittal. The 12 jurors, either by coincidence or plan, also went to the same restaurant, and the group celebrated through to the next morning. Their nightmare was over they could all return to their normal lives and get back onto the baseball diamond. Or so they thought. By the time the party was over, the early morning editions of the newspaper were in circulation. The papers published a statement from the new commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis. The statement was short but direct. Landis wrote that no player that throws a ball game or knowingly, quote, sits in conference with crooked players but doesn't report them, would ever again play professional baseball, regardless of what the court decided. The eight White Sox players, Eddie Sycott, Chick Gandel, Buck Weaver, Lefty Williams, Swede Risberg, Happy Felsch, Fred McMullen, and Shoeless Joe Jackson, were banned from professional baseball for life, effective immediately. The players were innocent in court, but guilty in the eyes of their sport. The gamblers moved on from the scandal fairly easily. Arnold Rothstein, enjoying the increased fame that the affair brought him, shifted away from gambling and began bootlegging alcohol and selling narcotics during Prohibition. Less than 10 years later, in November of 1928, Rothstein was shot and killed over a gambling debt. He never admitted that he played a role in the World Series fix. The players had a harder time moving on from their baseball careers. Shoeless Joe Jackson left Chicago and returned home to Savannah, Georgia. He was eager to put the scandal behind him. There, Jackson owned and operated a dry cleaning business and a valet service. He continued to play baseball in semi-pro leagues around the South, often under an assumed name to avoid attention. Eddie Sycott returned home to Michigan and worked for the Ford Motor Company before eventually retiring to a strawberry farm. After the trial, he never spoke in detail about the 1919 World Series. He died on his farm in 1969 at the age of 84. Chick Gandel remained in California for the rest of his life, 
working as a plumber in Los Angeles and Oakland. He insisted on his innocence, claiming to have given up on the scheme to throw games before the series even started. In his final interview in 1969, he claimed his conscience was clear. Unlike his teammates, Buck Weaver never let go of professional baseball. He was born to play, and he was determined to prove his innocence and get back on the field. Instead of returning home to Pennsylvania, Weaver remained in Chicago's South Side and fought tirelessly for reinstatement. He continued to play and coach in semi-pro baseball, always hoping that he could return to the major leagues. His efforts to be reinstated began immediately after the trial. Weaver met with Commissioner Landis and personally asked to be reinstated. While Landis was friendly to Weaver in the room, his answer was cold and concrete. There would be no reinstatement and no leniency. Decades passed. Even after his playing days were long gone, Buck Weaver continued trying to have his lifetime ban lifted. But neither Landis nor any of the commissioners who succeeded him were willing to do it. He made his final appeal in 1952 at the age of 63. This too was denied. In 1919 America, the corruptive influence of gambling was well known in sports like horse racing and boxing, but baseball was painted differently. It was the national pastime, a sport that had helped the country come together after the Civil War only 50 years prior. The game and its players were elevated to near-mythic status. Whether any of this mythical status was deserved, and whether American baseball ever fully lived up to these standards, is dubious. The story of the Black Sox, as they became known, was not the first scandal in American professional sports, and it wouldn't be the last. But it was the first that shook the nation to its core. The revelation that baseball was corrupt and that heroic players like Shoeless Joe Jackson were caught up in it was a shock to the system. But the nation recovered, and so did baseball. The sport's popularity ultimately exploded as the 1920s continued, driven by larger-than-life stars like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. After the scandal, the Chicago White Sox did not win another World Series for nearly a century. Fans called it the curse of the Black Sox, the second longest championship drought in baseball behind the Crosstown Cubs. The curse was finally broken on October 26, 2005, when the White Sox defeated the Houston Astros, their first championship in 87 years. There are still active movements supporting Shoeless Joe Jackson's posthumous reinstatement, arguing that his lifetime ban ended with his death. Many wanted Jackson to be voted into the Hall of Fame alongside his teammate, Eddie Collins. In 1998, Hall of Famers Ted Williams and Bob Feller pushed to have Jackson reinstated, while the U.S. Senate passed a resolution calling for Jackson to be honored for his accomplishments. Still, these efforts were not successful. In 2015, Rob Manfred, the current commissioner, rejected the latest reinstatement attempt for both Shoeless Joe Jackson and Buck Weaver. Weaver's nieces have tirelessly attempted to get their uncle reinstated. Instead, Manfred said that the case of the Chicago Black Sox was now best left to history. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode.
You can find more episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Sports Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. Carter Roy.